like to invite you to a soul level encounter. Music has an incredible ability to proclaim the soul's language beyond what mere words can speak. That's what we seek as we invite our guests to share their song of the soul. You will hear the music that has charted the steps of their spiritual journey, that has provided a touchstone in the soul's dark night and sung the heart's awe and joy when come to the light. Over the next hour, you will be a witness and companion to our guests' spiritual path and sacred testimony. Welcome to Song of the Soul. We return this week for Song of the Soul to that vibrant city of music, Austin, Texas, to visit with Kaya Hartwood. Last week, we were there to share the music of Meg Barnhouse, and now we'll be rocking, folking, countrying, and classicaling to the music made by her life partner and sometimes music partner, Kaya. She plays across the musical spectrum, but my impression is that of a dynamic guitar and voice founded on making real difference in the world. Kaya Hartwood joins us by phone from Austin, Texas. Kaya, thanks so much for joining me for Song of the Soul. Thank you. I got to hear one of your songs already because we had the interview with Meg Barnhouse, your partner, and that was wonderful music. How much of a chance do the two of you get to do music together? Well, a lot of times if I'm not already on tour and Meg gets a show, I will go out and support her. So I'll be her band and play solos for her and sing harmony. We both have our own rhythm of writing and stuff. And so we don't actually write together except for worship services. And that's the only thing we do together. And otherwise, we're having a nice life together, but we're not creating art together that much. How did you meet? Did you meet through music or through the UU circles or some other venue? A combination of the two. We um, met at a thing called SUSI. It's a Southeast Unitarian Universalist Summer Institute. It's in Virginia every summer, and about 1,000 to 1,500 UUs go to camp, and they have a lot of music there, and they hire professional musicians to play two nights. And so I went as one of the professional music people, and we got put in the same suite, and then we got to be friends the first year, and the second year we kind of got to be more than friends. So it was fun. You want to give us a little bit of your musical history? Sure. I started out writing songs like the minute I started playing guitar. I played drums in high school band and and I went to Girl Scout camp. So I, I got a lot of folky influence from that. This is, I guess, the early 70s, you know, when I was a kid. And so I, I was exposed to all the first generation of the folk revival but myself being a drummer and and really liking to dance and being more of a you know 80s 90s kind of kid rock and roll was the thing it's like uh, the music that impressed me the most with the Beatles and Crosby Stills Nash and Young and I loved the combination of politics and spirit and you know singer songwriter the singer songwriter era so I think I'm sort of a combination of those two things of singer songwriter folk influence with pretty hard rock did you perform on your own first, or were you with a band? Both. I started out in bands. I was a drummer in the band, and I kept writing songs, and so you'd have to switch with one of the guitar players that could play drums and go up front and sing, because usually there's not a mic for the drummer. And then I liked guitar better than drums, so I decided I needed to concentrate on one. And because I was writing and singing lead a lot, 
I just went with guitars. In college, I would play by myself a lot, and then I got in bands where I was the drummer, and it was the kind of the dawn of the punk area because I grew up in Kentucky, and we were very influenced by what was going on in Athens, Georgia, and in New York with kind of the, it doesn't matter if you know how to play, but if you have the energy to play that element of punk music as opposed to the no future generation element of punk music, I was in the more like REM that sort of scene. A guy in our town who was a drag queen, he looked like Divine, but he was very thin. He funded the band and he was very wealthy. His parents had died and left him a lot of money. And he opened a club where you could only play original music because he didn't want to pay BMI and ASCAP, I guess, or the people that you have to pay when you play covers in your bar or whatever. And so it created this really amazing artistic scene where all the bands were playing original music and I was in a band called Radio Cafe. Basically, my job was to write songs like the radio, but for the local club so people could dance. So I wrote everything from rockabilly to reggae. And, you know, it was a great training round. And as I got a little older, I got really influenced by, um, I wanted to mix folk roots instruments with rock and roll. So putting mandolins and violins and that sort of sound not even country, more even traditional than that, mixed up with rock and roll. That band became Stealing Horses, and that band got signed to Arista Records in the late 80s. And so suddenly I went from playing at the college bars for $25 to playing in arenas, opening for people like the Smithereens. But my idea of what being on a major label was, that it meant that you got to write songs like Ohio that you know that Neil Young wrote or something like that and you you could really do a lot of good I wasn't really interested in seeing how skinny I could be or what kind of dress I could wear to the Grammys or whatever I'm pretty much a boots and flannel shirt kind of girl and so it didn't work out too well but I learned a lot and I got to play with a lot of great musicians and I've been a musician ever since. So when I got out of the Stealing Horses band, I wanted to do something more socially responsible. So I started my own label and I met a woman named Miriam Davidson who plays everything. She's an incredible multi-instrumentalist and harmony singer. And we started a band called Wishing Chair that I'm still in part-time. It's been going for 16 years. We've played all over the country and it's fun. Then I started playing with Meg as her backing band. I still play with Miriam, and then I thought, well, I should be brave and do a solo record because I'm really kind of a band person, even though my skills are solo skills. Like I write songs and I play guitar and I sing and I talk to the audience. So now I'm I'm starting a new phase that's kind of scary, where I'm the solo performer. I'm touring a lot by myself, which is it's fun. Though I I'm surprised how much fun it is because I've always kind of been encircled by a band circle and you travel in that really tight circle unit everywhere. But when you travel by yourself, you get to meet more people and they talk to you more. So it's I like it. Well, I bet you can give us an example of your new kind of music, can't you? Sure. I would think Bold Swimmer. And yeah, that's the title of the solo CD. And I was reading Walt Whitman, who I love, and he, in Song of Myself, Part 46, he starts talking about how you should be a bold swimmer and dive into the waves and tussle your hair. And Anyway, so... That's how the song got that title. We'll start off Kaya Hartwood's Song of the Soul with the title song from her new CD. It's called Bold Swimmer.
Swimmer by Kaya Hartwood, and of course, that comes from some pretty famous poetry. You said, Kaya, that you're from Kentucky originally. How did you end up in Austin, Texas? A couple ways. I was actually born in Nashville, but I moved back to Kentucky, where my dad was from, when I was six. So Kentucky's home. And then I left Kentucky when I got the Arista record deal, and I was basically a road musician and touring and touring and touring and touring. So you're in the car constantly, and you just come home and check your mail and pat your cat and leave again. I lived in Kentucky, and then I lived in, uh, had to live in Nashville a little while because the Arista office was there. While I was on In Stealing Horses, we went to Austin for South by Southwest, which is a big music conference they have every March, and they've had it for 25 years. That's where Stealing Horses got signed, and I just love the culture of Texas, and I, we toured Texas a lot, and I always liked it, but in the meantime, my family started passing away, and, and I was, I'm the last one left, so I had a lot of things to take care of and people with cancer to take care of, and so I had to live where I needed to live. I spent 10 years in Oklahoma. And then when I met Meg, I moved to South Carolina. But she, she was serving a church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. 
and we were there, I guess, about four years after she met me, we decided that we wanted to go to a larger church. We decided to wait for the church in Austin to come open. So we went to Princeton, New Jersey for two years to wait that out and did an interim there. And then Meg got called to the church in Austin. So we moved here last July. Do you work as a ministerial duel of some sort? I'm like the preacher's wife. I mean, not to be crass or anything, but it's not a paid position, but it's a job in that you can't really be a member of the church as much as a regular member. Like you can't serve on committees or whatever because people would feel that you had undue influence with the minister. Kind of my job is to make sure that Meg is all right. How does that go over back home in Kentucky? I don't know much about Kentucky. I've barely visited there. But you've come quite a ways. I don't assume you started out as Unitarian Universalist, but maybe. Actually, I didn't know. But I read a lot as a kid, and so I was really intrigued by the Quakers, and I was really intrigued by the Transcendentalists. So in the course of working as a musician, a lot of UUs have coffee houses in their you know, and their tracks are laying around and you're reading and you're like, oh, this is interesting, and meeting a lot of people and then getting invited to play at the SUSE Summer Institute. Then it's like, yeah, I could join this. I could be in this fellowship because I would say my spirituality is really earth-based. The Unitarians are comfortable with that because it's not creed-based. You could be pretty much anything, and if you were willing to work on spirituality and and support other people's spirituality and community, you could be a Unitarian. So it hasn't been a problem. Where did you start from, though? All my family are Methodist ministers. But my dad, you know, he went to Korea, and he wasn't very uh, religious and and truthfully, he took us to church when I was a kid. We came home one Sunday, and they had stolen all his hunting dogs, and he was he never went to church again. Because <laughs> they, <laughs> while you go to church, they steal your hunting dogs. Yeah, he raised Labrador Retrievers, so came home, and they were gone. That was a major, major life disaster for him. So you kind of wandered for a while, I assume, I just never felt really strongly drawn to the Christian paradigm. It never took with me. I'm part Cherokee. I was always really drawn to more native spirituality and earth-based spirituality. And I feel my most spiritual moments outside. So that whole being in a church and that thing doesn't really click with me as much. So it's kind of funny that it's ended up this way. Undoubtedly, all of this comes out through your music. I mean, what's going on inside you, how you experience the world spiritually, emotionally, intellectually. So give us another example, and I'm sure we'll see your path reflected in those songs. Sure. This is a struggle song and a song that I think does the ministry of music. Um, It's called Hold On. And some of it's, you know, from my own experience, but it was more in general All the people I knew were really struggling with lots of big losses in their life or big life changes. It's speaking to that, I think. Hold On by Kaya Hartwood. Well, I can't go Oh, I'm slipping 
listening to Song of the Soul. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, your host for this Northern Spirit Radio production. We're visiting today with Kaya Hartwood. Her website is kayahartwood.com. You can also find her with a, a number of other websites, and I'll point those out on my website, northernspiritradio.org. Follow the links to her and to her partner. Well, back on the song that you just shared, Hold On, it's got the things in there like, you know, I've lost my faith, I don't belong. Did you go through that phase yourself earlier in life? Okay, it gets complicated. If I'm going to answer you honestly, I would say that the part of it that is me personally is more about feeling the, the shift from being in wish and chair to having to be a solo musician because to me, being a singer-songwriter is as much of a calling as being a minister. It's like nobody would pick it for the money. I can't do anything else. It's, And that's, you know, how I see the world. So I'm coming at the world going, oh, okay, can I write a song about this? And so for me personally, that's probably there. But in the course of the song, I'm saying out loud what I felt coming from other people as well as myself. You know, if you write a good song, the person's going, oh, yeah, I feel that way about the person I love. And they're not thinking, oh, Kaya loves Meg. That's Kaya's talking about Meg. No, you know, it's like, yes, I am. But but that helps me deliver the song with authenticity and soul. And so when somebody hears it, they spark off of that soul connection. And then the song has meaning to them, I hope. I mean, that's what you hope for. Uh, find that the songs that matter the most to other people were very scary for me to write, and they had a lot of, I took a risk in expressing the emotion. It's kind of a case of deep speaking to deep, I think. Yeah, but it's also the safest place to be, because if you do it well, the person is thinking about their own life and not yours. And so you're actually safer telling the truth than trying to talk around it. Well, those kind of changes that you did in transitioning from wishing chair to being on your own more, you're finally grown up at 50 or something, you know. You... And I was going to school in New Jersey. I got a scholarship to Westminster Choir College, and I was studying composition. So I'm, you know, 50-ish and going to school with people who are 19 who grew up in really privileged backgrounds and and are mostly guys and are mostly, you know, the kind of mind that is normally a composer is probably similar to the people that you went to school with when you were studying math. They're more likely to be like that than the people that you would run into as English majors, do you know? And so I really didn't fit in very well, and I'm very tonal. Like, I went to music school so I could write better for choirs. And uh, people who are just regular musicians, everyday kind of people that are playing music for the love of it, that put me in in a very isolated position. Plus, being a Southerner in New Jersey is a pretty challenging situation. If nothing else, then people talking to you about your accent and treating you like you're stupid, which is really annoying. Yeah, yeah, sure. So all that went into the song, you know. It's a, it was a lonely period of time. We were only there two years, and people knew we were going to leave because we were. It was an interim job, so you're pre-fired. You know what I mean? So there's not as much interest in making friends with you. And Princeton is a very staid place anyway. They like things to stay the same. It's not like Austin. It's not like Ann Arbor or you know, some place a little bit more lively. Well, keep us going with your music. 
Well, this next song, Change, I wrote about the Arab Spring. I got excited about I was watching all that on television and Facebook. And, and then just the beginning of the, of the Occupy movement. And so it's basically a fight song, kind of your classic protest song. Kaya Hartwood, Change is Gonna Come. is with us here today. Her website is kayahartwood.com. If you can't spell that, obviously, just come through nordenspiritradio.org and I'll point you in the right direction. Great song, a great song for the times. I guess this past year we've seen so much change coming. Some of us are disappointed that we didn't get more change in our own government, but I guess the Occupy movement is here to call that out. Do you get to interact with the Occupy movement, folks? A little bit, yes. 
while the encampment was going on, every Wednesday we invited them over and fed them dinner and and talked, and we actually did a joint statement between our fellowship and the Occupy Austin, just trying to keep them fed and make sure that everybody had everything they needed. You know, Austin, the police were fairly supportive. The challenge with the Occupy Austin was more a homeless situation, figuring out how to incorporate the homeless aspect of Occupy Austin with the other people that were there. Because the weather is so nice here, a lot of homeless people stay all year, and they're very organized. And so when you incorporate that element into the camping downtown and dealing with the police and, you know, people not having all their medications and, you know, it's it's a great struggle to figure out how to do the logistics of all that, keep everybody fed and out of jail and, you know, it was uh, overwhelming and and it's still going on. How did you get into the liberal end of things? Was that how you were raised? I've just always been that way. I don't know. I just came out that way. I mean, my family... My family are all dead, and I wasn't raised in a close-knit family. I was kind of on my own. My grandparents kind of raised me. But I think I just resonated with what I saw on television when I was a child and the music that was playing on the radio and what seemed fair to me. And I came out really young, so I was out. I was an out lesbian in Kentucky in the early 70s, which I can't tell you how uh, challenging that was. But... Well, I talked to people from away about Kentucky. They're like, did you know people burn your house down or whatever? No, because I grew up between Lexington and Louisville, which is pretty much the liberalist part of Kentucky. I would say Lexington is pretty liberal. It's a college town. You know, for the most part, I lived in the in rural situations when I was in Kentucky, and no one ever bothered me personally, and I was out and playing music out and in the newspaper out, and nobody ever bothered me so to speak. But they were aware. I mean, like, you can tell the difference between, even if someone's liberal, you can tell if they're paying attention to the fact that you're a a gay or lesbian. I would say that there's still homophobia if you still think about the fact that I'm gay when you talk to me. It shouldn't be the first thing people think about you. Do you know what I mean? What color you are, what race you are, what your sexual preferences, all those sort of things. So in that respect, I would say Kentucky is still homophobic because that's probably the first thing people would think. I'm still kind of blown away by the fact that you came out or had a clear identification at, I think you said... I was 14. You were 14. Yeah, and I ran away from home when I was 17, and it was very public when they brought me back. And so everybody in my high school knew. My brother would walk me to classes and make sure I was all right. And But there's also, you know... I'm Southern, and I know how to live in that culture. And and you can be unique, quote, unquote, and be Southern if somebody's related to you or connected to you somehow. It's like, oh, those gay people is different than Kaya. Oh, yeah, we know Kaya. And they might whisper about it, but they wouldn't do anything to you directly. So it's much more of a challenge of coming up in your family because until you're 18, you don't own yourself. And so if your parents are homophobic, You know, I had a lot of friends who got put in mental institutions in junior high because, you know, they did the wrong thing. So it was challenging, and it's a lot better now. And you said that part of your background, your ethnic background, is Cherokee. Yeah, a little Choctaw, but on my mother's side, but not a, you know, I'm a blonde-headed girl, so... 
so is Cherokee as part of your lineage, does that make a difference in Kentucky? I would say Appalachian culture is pretty much Cherokee culture because the best way to live in the mountains is that way. And so people who move there intermarried and lived in a style that worked because it's not farming land. It's rocky. It's hilly. If you're in the wrong holler, you don't get enough sunshine to grow crops. So hunting and gathering made more sense and living more Cherokee lifestyle makes more sense. So, yeah, my people have been in Kentucky since... The white people have been in Kentucky since uh, 1700 and something, so I have a pretty much standard Appalachian heritage. I had the privilege of living in Tahlequah, which is the Cherokee capital for the Western Cherokee. It's the end of the Trail of Tears. So when they found gold on somebody's farm in northern Georgia during Andrew Jackson's reign, he ordered the Army to move all the Cherokees to eastern Oklahoma, And the place that they settled is called Tahlequah, which means two is enough in Cherokee, because they sent three scouts out, and two of them picked this valley. I lived there for about 10 years, and this October, my best friend from there just passed away, and I wrote him a song that I got to play for him right before he died. It kind of has that Cherokee spirituality interspersed in the song, but it's a lament. It's called Territory. Brother, where are you going when you lay your body down? I'm going west of Oklahoma till I reach that sacred ground. Brother, Oh
standing with a mirror tree below. There's a richness in the darkness, and from death, new spirits grow. Must pass away, but I can see those dancers spinning. I can hear the drums they play. Listening to Kaya Hartwood's Song of the Soul, that was Territory, one of the songs from Bold Swimmer, her new CD. You can find her via her website, kayahartwood.com, follow the link also from nordenspiritradio.org, and Territory out there in Oklahoma. How long were you living out there, Kaya? About 10 years off and on. I was mostly touring, but my home base was there. So that's one of those places where you came home to to pet your cat and then left. Yes, exactly. I had a lot of friends that could help me take care of my life because when you're touring all the time, you have to have people look into your house and make sure, you know, things are all right. And So it requires a network of people to pull it off. You have to have people checking in on your house to make sure they don't steal your hunting dogs or your petting cats while you're gone. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Um, it was a very inexpensive place to live, and the whole Southwest is much more of a live music culture. So if you're in a band and you want to make a living in a band, you've got the people in the band, the five people in the band, plus the people who run the sound and all that. So we're talking about keeping seven people employed. You've got to be able to play more than just Friday and Saturday night. And so the whole Southwest is really good for that. There's lots. I mean, Austin is the music, live music capital of the world. And Oklahoma is like that, too. It's very close to Fayetteville, Arkansas. That whole area of the Ozarks is a, a live music culture. There are a lot of places to play. I moved there right after the Arista record deal went down, and so I was able to live very inexpensively. I think my rent back then, we're talking about in the 90s, was like $150 a month for 90 acres and a trailer. I mean, you know, it's like very remote, dirt road kind of ness. It was a really fun place to live, too, because Cherokee's culture is really fun. It doesn't go at the pace that a Western American culture pace. I kind of resonate with that lifestyle. I appreciate that you can go swim in the creek and you don't have to pay to go, that people have lots of potlucks and are social and know it in their neighbors, and I like that. So it was a very fun place to live. 
When I was looking at your site, Kaya, I also noticed that you play sometimes in religious or church or other type venues, which I don't know if that's the norm for when you were back in your wild 20s. How much of your schedule is that kind of thing? Actually, I mean, it's sort of incorrect to say that I had a wild 20s and then, you know, I'm kind of the same person. Like, I've never been a real big partier in the sense of drugs or drinking or any of that. I just like the experience of playing and being around all those people in the exchange. So that part hasn't changed. So a lot of times, especially in the singer-songwriter world, you end up playing in a church concert series. And then the Sunday morning, they invite you to be the special music. And I really enjoy that. You get to go to the service you get to meet a whole new bunch of people, and they're in a very receptive zone. You play three or four songs on the, during the service. And sometimes I have even uh, do a sermon. It's a singing sermon where, you know, I have one about Martin Luther King and Mother Jones and Virgin Smolovic, the cellist of Sarajevo. And so I play these songs about these people and tell their stories. Basically, the point of the sermon is that they didn't start out as being these great, moral leaders that they said no a couple of times before they actually got around to doing it. And I think people don't know that, and it's good. It brings them down to a more human level and more approachable. It's more like, oh, yeah, I could do that too. And I do a lot of stuff with Meg, which is great, where I'm backing her up. She'll do a concert on Saturday night and then do the service on Sunday, and we'll do the music, and I'll play guitar for her and sing harmony. And we've written some worship services as well. We started thinking about people today and how multimedia-oriented they are and trying to think about how we can take the 19th century service and take it into the 21st century. So we wrote this worship service that we did for Earth Day called the Gaia Psalms. I think uh, we have a sample of it. This is the first piece in the eight-piece service. And it's called Water, and basically the kids get dressed up as birds and fish and trees, and they come to the service dressed up. And so you're going to this Earth celebration with all the creatures of the Earth, and there's a slideshow and this music playing and makes poetry and litany on top. So this will give you an idea about those kind of services. And there's a script and recordings of them, so... People can do them at their service when their ministers has a day off or in the summer if they give their minister the summer off and they have lay services. Breathe with me into the beginning. See the spinning tiny dot in the vastness of space. On its surface, water and fire kissing, hissing. Land masses forming, floating, crashing together, pulling apart. Their names are Ur, Arctica, Baltica, Atlantica, Nina, Rodinia, 
Pangea. beginning. into the sky, raining down again, changing form for untold ages. that reflects the sky? Will you be on an otter's tongue? Will you dissolve into the sea in the end? Will you always be in the end? Will you always be? Water, and that was a collaboration of Meg Barnhouse and Kaya Hartwood. They call the recordings with all of these religious services the Gaia Psalms. You can find it at outlawhillarts.com. You can buy it, and you could use it locally, too. I guess that's what you're encouraging folks to do, right, Kaya? It's not just for you to hold there in Austin, your separate property. Oh, yeah, we found it all over the country, actually. There's a book with a script and the scores, and so... If the fellowship had a lot of violinists or whatever, they could actually play for the service. 
It sounds like you started out doing your own music, writing your own songs from a really pretty young age. Do you ever do other people's music, or is this all Kaya? Yeah, I do. You know, I appreciate other people's music. I just I write a lot. You know, basically put a CD out every two years since I was in college. But yeah, in fact, I did a cover on the new CD because it just said exactly how I was feeling at the moment. It's called Feeling Good. The famous version is by Nina Simone. But I thought if I did it with a banjo that nobody would compare it <laughs> with her amazing voice. So, yeah, I did a cover of Feeling Good. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Rears drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life for me. And I'm feeling cover of Feeling Good. You may know it by Nina Simone, but it's actually written by Anthony Newley and Leslie, and I'm going to guess that the pronunciation of the last name is Bricus, because I speak French, and that's how it's spelled in French. 
But in any case, you've got a wonderful version of it there, Kaya. You're playing the banjo for that. And just a couple months ago, I had a woman on, a very wonderful artist herself. She performs under the name Mother Banjo, and she plays rather in that style instead of the blazing banjos style that I guess many of us are more used to. I was also interested by that song because the name, Feeling Good, Actually, the song sounds kind of bluesy or maybe uh, on the not-so-happy side, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's bittersweet. Yeah, you know, nobody likes change. Everybody says they do, but they don't. I like the bumper sticker that says, change is good, you go first. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So I think, yeah, I think it captured the trepidation and excitement of a new chapter. Well, it's been a new chapter for me getting to know you, Kaya. You got some great music there. And again, I want to remind people to go to kayahartwood.com or follow the link from northernspiritradio.org. She's down there in Austin, Texas, but I think you have banjo and guitar and everything and will travel, right, Kaya? Absolutely. It's been great having you here today. I love your stories. I love your travel. I love your spirit. Thanks so much for joining me, Kaya. Thank you. It was my pleasure. The theme music for Song of the Soul is by Chris Williamson, and it's called Song of the Soul. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and this is a Northern Spirit Radio production. You can listen to this program again, track down the list of songs included, and a whole lot more on my website, northernspiritradio.org. And I invite you to share your Song of the Soul with my listeners. Just contact me via my website. And please, join me weekly for Song of the Soul. You can be happy.